The Meaning of Birmingham, 1963. As this pamphlet, Civil Rights, The True Frontier, goes to press, the civil rights movement has reached yet a new step in its development. For the first time, a thoroughgoing revolution is occurring in the South. From progressive Greensboro to industrial Birmingham to semi-rural Jackson, the movement includes all levels of the Negro community. It is a movement that consciously intends to transform the white power structure in this country. A movement that has taken the initiative away from the Kennedy administration and the forces that would contain the movement with moderate concessions. A movement that will not be satisfied with integrated lunch counters and promises, but that is demanding jobs and freedom now. Birmingham has taught white America many lessons, not the least of them that Negroes were serious when they said they would fill the jails until southern cities were impoverished and that social dislocation is a reality that confronts all segregated institutions. It ought now to be perfectly clear that Negroes will not wait another 25 years. No longer can white liberals merely be proud of those well-dressed students who are specialists in nonviolent action. Now they are confronted by a Negro working class that is demanding equal opportunity and full employment. The Negro community is now fighting for total freedom. It took $3 million in a year of struggle simply to convince the powers that be that one has the right to ride in the front of a bus. If it takes this kind of pressure to achieve a single thing, then one can just as well negotiate fully for more, for every economic, political, and social right that is presently denied. That is what is important about Birmingham. Tokenism is finished. The Negro masses are no longer prepared to wait for anybody, not for elections, not to count votes, not to wait on the Kennedys or for legislation, nor, in fact, for Negro leaders themselves. They are going to move. Nothing can stop them from moving. And if that Negro leadership does not move rapidly enough and effectively enough, they will take it into their own hands and move anyhow. And out of this, we can see a new phase for the civil rights movement. It is the phase of the use of mass action, nonviolent disobedience, and nonviolent non-cooperation. Birmingham has proved that no matter what you're up against, if wave after wave of black people keep coming, prepared to go to jail, sooner or later, there is such confusion, such dislocation, that white people in the South are faced with a choice either integrated restaurants or no restaurants at all, integrated public facilities or none at all. And the South then must make its choice for integration, for it would rather have that than chaos. This struggle is only beginning in the North, but it will be a bitter struggle. It will be an attack on business, on trade unions, and on the government. The Negro will no longer tolerate a situation where for every white man unemployed, there are two or three Negroes unemployed. In the North, Negroes present a growing threat to the social order that, less brutally and more subtly than in the South, attempts to keep him in his place. 
In response, moderates today warn of the danger of violence and extremism, but do not attempt to change conditions that brutalize the Negro and breed racial conflict. What is needed is an ongoing massive assault on racist political power and institutions. The mood of the black community is one of anger and confidence of total victory. The victories to date have given added prestige to nonviolent resistance as a method. One can only hope that the white community will realize that the black community means what it says, jobs and freedom now. Preamble to the March on Washington, 1963. One, the 100 years since the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation have witnessed no fundamental government action to terminate the economic subordination of the American Negro. Today, the ratio of unemployment among Negroes and whites remains two to one, while the income of Negroes is roughly half that of whites. Not only have these disparities remained constant over decades, but in the present period, they have absolutely widened. Their effect on race relations generally can only frustrate the limited gains recently registered in school integration and in equal accommodations in public facilities and transportation. Two, the condition of Negro labor is inseparable from that of white labor. The immediate crisis confronting black labor grows out of the unresolved crisis in the national economy. History shows that the peculiar disadvantages suffered by the Negro as the result of segregation and discrimination are alleviated in times of relatively full employment and aggravated when employment is high. So far, the federal government has produced no serious answers to the problem of rising unemployment. Each succeeding recession has produced an upward revision of minimal unemployment rates, and Congress and the White House appear complacent in the face of current unemployment figures of 6%. Three, the current crisis is overwhelmingly the result of structural unemployment. Thousands of workers have been displaced by automation, rendered economically functionless in modern industrial society. Negroes have been disproportionately victimized, for automation has attacked precisely those unskilled and semi-skilled jobs to which Negroes have traditionally been relegated. Moreover, the persistence of racial discrimination on a national scale has closed to Negroes who have lacked the training to compete for skilled jobs, even the limited opportunities for job retraining available to whites. Statistics speak clearly, 25% of the long-term unemployed are Negroes. Four, automation coupled with a tremendous population increase is seriously limiting job opportunities for all youth, particularly Negroes in the 16 to 21 age group. 50% of Negro youth 16 to 21 are idle. A disproportionate number of the 8 million school dropouts a year are Negroes. Five, these indisputable facts dictate certain strategies for the overall progress of the Negro in the present period. A, 
integration in the fields of education, housing, transportation, and public accommodations will be of limited extent and duration so long as fundamental economic inequality along racial lines persists. Already the slowdown in the rate of progress in many of these fields is evident in the widespread characterization of recent gains as tokenism. An economically disprivileged people is not able to utilize institutions and facilities geared to middle-class incomes and to an inflated economy. They cannot afford to patronize the better restaurants, integrated or not. Their own financial circumstances segregate them from middle-class housing. They cannot afford to travel, whether buses are integrated or not, or send their children to college. B, the demand for merit hiring practices is obsolete. When a racial disparity in unemployment has been firmly established in the course of a century, the changeover to equal opportunities merely prevents a further divergence in the relative status of the races, but does not wipe out the cumulative handicaps of the Negro worker. In addition, equal opportunities is a declining national economy means, at best, only an equal opportunity to share in the decline. C. Clearly, there is no need for Negroes to demand jobs that do not exist. Nor do Negroes seek to displace white workers as both are being displaced by machines. Negroes seek instead, as an integral part of their own struggle as a people, the creation of more jobs for all Americans. Therefore, the project described below must be a massive effort involving coordinated participation by all progressive sectors of the liberal, labor, religious, and Negro communities. Only such an all-embracing effort can call for a broad national governmental action on a scale adequate to meet the problem of unemployment, especially as it relates to minority groups. At the same time, we believe that the Negro community has an especially important role to play. For the dynamic that has motivated Negroes to withstand with courage and dignity the intimidation and violence they have endured in their own struggle against racism in all its forms may now be the catalyst which mobilizes all workers behind demands for a broad and fundamental program of economic justice. Nature of the Project one, program. A, the project should call for action by the president and Congress, listing concrete demands to be drawn up. B, we should emphasize the theme that because the Emancipation Proclamation of 1863 has failed to bring real freedom for the Negro, no worker in America is genuinely free. We now demand a program of action in 1963 that will ensure the emancipation of all labor, regardless of color, race, or creed. Two, action. We envision a two-day action program divided as follows. A, a Friday in June, a mass descent on Congress and a carefully chosen delegation to the White House. The objective in Congress would be to so flood all congressmen with a staggered series of labor, church, 
and civil rights delegations from their own states that they would be unable to conduct business on the floor of Congress for an entire day. Just as these delegations would present, in part, our list of legislative demands, so would the White House delegation seek to put before the president, as leader of his party, and as chief executive, our proposals for both legislative and executive action. B, a Saturday in June, a mass protest rally with the twofold purpose of projecting our concrete emancipation program to the nation and of reporting to the assemblage the response of the President and Congress to the action of the previous day. Organizational steps. One, the following two documents should be drawn up immediately. A, a clear statement of our purpose. B, a simple factual analysis of the present job situation in the United States with special attention to minority group workers. Two, Mr. Randolph should clear the above statements as well as this memorandum with his colleagues. Three, the entire idea should receive a vote of approval by the Negro American Labor Council. Four, Mr. Randolph should then be in touch with Dr. King, Roy Wilkins, and James Farmer to secure their endorsement of the plan and a commitment of whatever resources they can make available. Five, having secured the support of these elements, a combined state of the race and labor conference should be convened, including representation from relevant labor, civil rights, church, women, and civic organizations. Six, this conference having formulated the precise demands we shall take to Washington and established the broad base of the effort should be terminated with a press conference at which the project would be officially announced. Seven, project committees should be set up in major cities.